Matthew was written by none other than Levi, uh, the Lord's disciple. He's an eyewitness to the accounts that are here recorded for us. He walked and talked and lived with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember right, Matthew is not writing chronologically. So as you read and study this and as you compare it to Luke's gospel particularly, Matthew is writing much more geographically and based on location he is giving us uh, the accounts of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So far we have seen in Matthew chapter 1 in the study of the genealogies, we've looked at the human right of Jesus to the throne of David and to the promises of Abraham. And you'll remember that we walked through those lists of names and we reveled in God's grace and in His providence of bringing the promised one through a human lineage all the way to um, His mother Mary. At the conclusion of chapter 1, from verses 18 to 25, last week we celebrated Christmas in September and we studied together the divine lineage of Jesus. And as the very Son of God, none other than God Himself, second person of the Trinity, eternally existent, He has every right to the promises and the claim of Messiah. So Jesus is given to us in Matthew chapter 1 as both 100% man and 100% God. And this is the marvel and the mystery of the Incarnation that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 speaks of, and Philippians chapter 2. Doug Bookman, a professor at the Master's College for many years, has kind of coined a term, and I want to just make reference to this, that when we read of the humanity of Jesus Christ and we read of the divinity of Jesus Christ, both must be held in perfect unison. Jesus was not God in a bod, as Doug Bookman would say. He did not, as a child, create a winning game every time kickball came up in his neighborhood. He did not develop at supernatural rate. He was a human being, no doubt, no question. He was devoid of sin and its influence, and yet he was perfectly man and perfectly God, two natures in perfect unison as none other than Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew's point has been obvious. He has been stacking the deck, proving that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah, and they must acknowledge Him as so, and they must repent and follow Him. Obviously, this is written post-ascension, post-resurrection, post-crucifixion, and the Jewish people have for the most part, rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their promised one, and they continue to do so to this day, though Christ is worshipped by a remnant. God is faithful to preserve His people. And when we come to chapter 2, we find ourselves building on the proofs of chapter 1 that in fact He had a human lineage that backed up His claim to be Messiah. He was, in fact, the very Son of God, virgin-born of Mary. And in chapter 2, we will see that He was the very one promised by the prophets. Last week, in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1, we studied the Christmas people and looked at who God used and the people that were involved. We looked at the problem that Joseph faced, the promises, the prophecy, and the progress of obedience in Joseph's life at the conclusion of that paragraph. And this morning we move to the third proof of the rightful place of Jesus as the King of the Jews. And he'll be referenced as that today. And you remember that, that the Magi came because the King of the Jews had been born. The next time we'll see that title will be when? When it is tacked above his head on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. Matthew's point was the king was actually the king. The irony was they posted his title and it was true. We must bow before him as the king of the Jews, as the promised Messiah 
and the promise fulfillment to Abraham to bless all nations and provide salvation for sinners. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 2, and we are going to set out on a record-breaking journey because the goal this morning is to walk all the way through Matthew chapter 2. And I'm scared for you this morning. I have fear for you because I'm looking at what's here and I'm looking at what's in the Scriptures and I'm wondering how exactly we're going to get through this. And yet it's my goal and my desire and we will persevere this morning and walk through the message of Matthew chapter 2. Now you may wonder why are we trying to get through all of Matthew 2. Because when we come to sections of Scripture that are historical and narrative, usually there is a unified point that's found in the narrative. So could we divide this up into four different sections as your paragraph headings would be in your copy of the Scriptures? Absolutely we could. And the message, the point, the inspired intention would be the exact same message every single time because this has a unified theme and it is that Jesus was fulfilling promises. He was not just the rightful bloodline to the throne of David and to the promises of Abraham. He was not just the very Son of God, God Himself. He was also promised for centuries. And He is the fulfillment. His life fulfills those promises, and that is the point of all of Matthew chapter 2. So this morning we're going to look at four fulfillments of prophecy that further prove the messianic claim of Jesus Christ and that also demand our radical devotion and worship of Jesus Christ. Now, at the outset, we're going to do something that's maybe uncommon. We're going to read the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 2 to give us the full context and to give us a feel for where we're going this morning. So read along. These are familiar sections. I trust you'll enjoy this as we read God's Word together. Now, verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for, it, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had happened. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until, they came, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So, what are the four fulfillments that further prove the Messianic claim of Christ? They're quite obvious. And if you have some edition of the Scriptures that calls out a quote or an Old Testament reference, then it's not hard for you to see them as it isn't hard for me to see them in my scriptures. And yet I want to study them, think about them, and ultimately be confirmed in our faith and our understanding that Jesus is, in fact, who He said He was. Each of these fulfillments, each of these promises, center around a location. So we are really locational this morning, which is within Matthew's normal scope of understanding. We're going to be in four different locations, and each of those locations have a corresponding prophecy and fulfillment in the life and the very early life of Jesus. So, fulfillment number one, Jesus born in Bethlehem. Jesus born in Bethlehem. Now, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Herod is in charge of Jerusalem at this point. He has been dethroned once after being set up as the ruler over this region by his father. And he has come back and he has run out the Parthians and he is now ruling over Jerusalem and all of Judea. The Magi come from the east and they come seeking the one whose star they have seen when it rose. Now, There's all kinds of things that I don't think we have thought deeply about in this section, and we suffer from bad songs and from the culturalization of Christmas when we come to this section. I, for one, was amazed at what I found and what I didn't find in this narrative account of the Magi coming, searching for the King of the Jews. The star had risen over Jerusalem or to the west of these wise men. And these wise men had started on a journey because they understood the scrolls. They knew that Jerusalem would be the place to go to find out where the Messiah had been born. They had some understanding of who it was that they were looking for. Let's talk about the Magi for just a minute, just to lay out this narrative before we see the point of prophecy fulfilled. The Magi, what we know about the Magi is that they were wise men from the East and that they had some grasp of biblical knowledge. They were some Gentile proselyte of the Jewish faith at some level. They had some understanding of the scrolls. They had seen the prophetic writings. And they had enough understanding to know that when Christ was born, He was, in fact, the King of the Jews. He was the promised one from the Father. Here's what we don't know about the Magi, about the wise men from the East. We do not know the number of wise men. I hate to burst bubbles, but we don't know if there were three of these wise men. In fact, there could have been a whole army of these wise men who came from the East. We don't know if they rode camels, right? Just telling you, we don't know what they came on or how they got there. We don't know what their names were. In fact, it's amazing, but if you read church history, all of a sudden, an early father in the church just names them. They have names now. And I wonder how in the world we came to understand what their names were. We don't have names recorded. We don't have their specific location recorded. We don't know where they came from, though the east would seem to point to the orient, so at least we got some part of our song 
It's correct. We don't know much about these men, and yet they came with an intent to worship and to find the Messiah. Herod is the one that they ultimately come in contact with, but not because they go to Herod, but because Herod hears that there's somebody asking for the king of the Jews. And so there is a ruckus in the community that there is a national king in the line of David who has been born. And Herod, being the jealous man that he was, is desperately trying to control his authority and wants to squash whatever rebellion could rise around some national king some national ruler of the people of Israel. So these magi come. Herod is grieved. He is very concerned about this situation. And so are all the people. Because Herod had a terrible reputation of violence and anger towards the people of Israel. They were not happy that these wise men from the east were asking about a king of the Jews. This meant trouble under the reign of Herod the Great. So Herod brings them in and wants to know why they're here, what they're about to do, and he assembles the religious who's who of Jerusalem. Okay, Herod says, that's it, we're going to get to the bottom of this. I want everybody who's anybody in the religious scene in Jerusalem here, and I want them now. I want them here yesterday. Get them and get them here fast. So they come, they come together, and an amazing testimony to the validity of the Old Testament He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Where was the Christ? Where was the suffering servant to be born? And the scribes and the chief priests know where the Messiah was to be born. Say, why is that interesting? Well, today you'd be hard-pressed to find a rabbi that would even admit that the Messiah is a person. That there is even a personal Messiah who is promised to be born. It has all been spiritualized. It has all been born back in by allegory into the nation. That Isaiah 53 is about the nation. That Micah 5 is about the nation. And yet at this point, at least the religious leaders of the Jewish people, though they were deceived and deceivers, understood that there was a Messiah that Yahweh had promised. And that brings us to verse 5 and the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus born in Bethlehem. Verse 5, they told him, that being the ones, the high priest, the chief priest, and the scribes, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Bethlehem was the place. It was the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah. You can find this back in Micah chapter 5. Make your way to Micah. This will be a lot of page turning, I'm sure. Tucked right in between uh, Jonah and Nahum, if that helps. Go to the left if you're in Matthew. And you'll come there in a couple hundred pages or so. (laughs) Micah chapter 5. Here is the promise of a ruler to be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, Therefore he shall give them up until their time. And she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Matthew brings insight here for us to know that this is in fact a promise not of just a ruler, not just any ruler, not just a son of David, but the ruler, the one from ancient days who will come and shepherd the people of Israel. So Micah had made plain that the Messiah's birth was to be in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was not a special place. Bethlehem had a few things going for it. It was the burial place of Rachel. We know that. Jacob buried Rachel there. It was the wedding spot for Boaz and Ruth. 
they came there, and it was the hometown of their grandson, who was none other than David himself. That would have been the greatest claim of this little tiny village, Bethlehem, was that David, in fact, had shepherded sheep and grown up in their community. But otherwise, this was a regular small village in the land of Israel with a past historical claim to fame, not unlike cities in our country. And yet this was the one promised. So, the fulfillment of the prophecy is simple. Jesus came from Bethlehem, therefore, Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. He has the human lineage. He is none other than the Son of God. He is divine. And He is born in Bethlehem, which is confirming the prophet's prophecy. Now, to wrap up the story here in the first section of chapter 2, you know it well, but Herod gets a little scheme together, and he says, go out there, and find him, and make sure that you tell me where he is, because I want to come just like you men and worship him. And so the wise men begin their journey. Verse 9, it says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now let's just think just a little bit about the star. There's been all kinds of speculation about which star, which planet, what did they see, what were they following, what was their sign and their guide. The word for star, and this is universally understood, is also a synonym for bright light, for glare, um, other common words that we would know. I think the best understanding that we find from Matthew chapter 2 is that when the host appeared at the birth of Christ and declared that he was in fact born, these men saw the host light up the sky. And we don't know, and we are led to think that it was not a literal star, as in a planet star that's up in our solar system, but rather a special star presented by God for this very purpose. In fact, it's no star of the heavens, because it actually came to rest over top of a house. So I don't know about you, but recently we haven't seen many stars that are resting directly over our house. When we come out of our house and look up, we can't put any one of them directly over top of us because they're all over us. And so in some special sense, God gave bright, shining glory. This could have been the Shekinah glory of God over the very house where Jesus was resting. The Magi come and follow it, and they find him. And here's really the application of this first prophecy fulfilled. Let's look at the response just briefly in verse 10 and 11 of the Magi when they find the Christ. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There is no English way to translate what's here. That is the highest superlative. They were excited as excited could be. They were super happy with happiness. They were joyful with joy. They were exceedingly glad with gladness. They were jumping up and down on their camel's back. Okay, we'll go with camels. These guys were excited. They were thrilled because they had come for one reason. And their reason, they knew when they saw the light, when they saw the star, that they in fact were going to find the one who was promised. And going into the house that the star rested over, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And these are dramatic words. The picture that's given here is of a little toddler baby living in a home in Bethlehem and grown men who were high-ranking officials and wise men in the court of some king are laying on their faces before him. This is the heart condition of each and every person who comes to understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They worshipped him. And their worship took on action. It is illustrated by their giving. The opening of their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't want to go too far with those representing things. They gave of their wealth to a baby because they believed the claims of his messianic right. 
If you were here several weeks ago, our dear friend Daniel Gillespie was here and preached to us from John chapter 12. Remember this? Mary comes and breaks open her perfume and she pours it out. It was over a year's wage and it's worth. And the point was that Mary was reckless. She was irrational when it came to her worship because Christ was worth everything she could imagine giving him. There was nothing too much or too great to give in worship to Christ. And as we stand here, sit here, and look at this old account, this ancient history of these men coming and seeing Jesus as a baby, we need to be reminded that He is worth, He is worth, He is worthy of everything we have. There is no worship that is too radical for Him. The more we sacrifice, the more we break open our treasure box and we pour it out before the Lord for His work, whether it be our resources, our time, the more He is glorified, the more He is worshipped as He is worthy. So these men come, and the fulfillment of prophecy is seen because the Savior is born in Bethlehem and the Magi find Him and worship Him. Secondly, there's a second prophecy fulfilled, and it's Jesus out of Egypt. Now, in verse 13, when they had departed, that being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So the Magi come, they take the back roads out of Bethlehem, because they get warned that it's no good. Herod is going to kill you, he's going to kill Baby Jesus, he has nothing but evil in mind, so get out of here, and they go a different way. The next thing that happens is that Joseph lays down, and old Joseph, by the end of this narrative, he is getting used to angels showing up in dreams. You know, I think, I think of Joseph, he's a real guy, and he's really going to bed at night, and I assume by this point he's really assuming that he will have a dream, and then an angel will be in the dream, and the angel will actually tell him to do something. And as we noticed last week, secondarily in application, what does Joseph do every single time the word of the Lord comes to him through a dream and an angel's word? He does exactly what God commands him to do. So that's what happens. The angel comes, says, get out of here. Herod has nothing but evil for the child. And verse 14, understatement, Joseph responds, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And so... They flee to Egypt for safety's sake. And we find this to be the most stark prophecy fulfilled. This one is difficult for us to get our minds around. Verse 15, And remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. They say, why is that difficult? Well, this prophecy comes from the book of Hosea. And the minor prophets, for the sake of blood flow, turn to Hosea. Chapter 11. And let's look at this prophecy in its context. The Lord here is speaking, Yahweh God, speaking of his people Israel. And he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they, called, they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now, if you know anything about the book of Hosea, it is a dramatic book, to say the least. Hosea's life as a prophet was one marred by a wife who was a prostitute. Hosea married a prostitute. She constantly went back to prostitution and he consistently loved her unconditionally. And God, through the life of the prophet Hosea, put on display his unconditional love for his people Israel. And though they went after gods, after gods, after gods, and after they sold themselves into slavery to false idols, he was unconditional in his love and rescue of his people. And chapter 11, verse 1, tells us that one of the dramatic illustrations of that was that he brought them up out of Egypt. God had no obligation to do so. Yet he did. 
He loved Israel unconditionally. The prophet Hosea gives account of the faithfulness of God. I hope that you as a Bible student are finding the problem here. This, this prophecy of Hosea, these words of Hosea are not directly and historically about Jesus Christ. So how do we go to a section of Scripture that has a clear intent, it has a clear message, and how are we then to understand this as a fulfillment, the fact that Joseph took his family to Egypt is a fulfillment of what was prophesied by Hosea. And how does this confirm the messianic claim of Jesus Christ? Israel is seen here in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 as a type of Christ coming out of Egypt. As a type. Maybe you've never heard the word type or typology. Let me explain that a little bit to you. A type in Scripture, is a non-verbal prediction or foreshadowing. It's an Old Testament event or it's, a personal, or it's a personal example that illustrates an aspect of the person or work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. The definition given by Pastor John. Let me explain that a little bit for you just with less technical terms. A type is an event that we read and is recorded for us, which is later in the New Testament told to us to be an illustration of either a characteristic or an actual event in the life of Jesus Christ. And so there are numerous types of Christ. They are illustrations in the Old Testament. And they are fulfilled ultimately only in the person of Christ. And they are only found when explained by the New Testament. And so, when we come to Matthew chapter 2 and we see out of Egypt... I called my son. This prophecy was historical. The book of Hosea is not to be spiritualized. It had an intent and it meant it. And yet Israel is a type. It is a foreshadowing. It is a picture, an illustration of Jesus Christ himself. You say, how are we to know that? We're not. They are revealed to us in the New Testament. So, before you go and put your typology hat on and begin your journey through the Old Testament, finding types, please know that the New Testament is the guardrail set that helps you when you come to typology. You remember Jesus after his ascension. He walks along the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And he speaks to them and he says, beginning at what? Beginning at who? Jesus explained to them all that was said about him, beginning at Moses. So here are these men walking, disciples of Christ, and he is walking along with them. They are not knowing who he is, and yet he, beginning with Moses, explains to them all that is said about him in the Old Testament. We don't know all that he explained to them, but we do know that Israel is one of those explanations. It was a type of the very person and a fulfillment was only found in Jesus Christ in the ultimate eternal sense that out of Egypt God called his son. So prophecy was fulfilled. The writer of Hosea would not have known that he wrote of a type. Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt, did not think we are a picture of the Messiah to come. This is all fits under our doctrine of progressive revelation. That is, God revealed progressively until the close of the canon of Scripture. And so here Matthew reveals a type of Christ and a fulfillment of prophecy by, by experience. Only the New Testament can reveal types to us. And it is our Bible study guardrail for typology. You can go down every rabbit trail in the Old Testament and spiritualize, allegorize, and find ways to tie it back to Christ if you're creative enough. And I would caution and warn you to let the New Testament declaration of a type be your guide. We find another one in the third fulfillment of prophecy that confirms the claim of Jesus Christ. Not only is he Jesus born of Bethlehem, not only is he Jesus out of Egypt, but he is also Jesus rescued from Ramah. Then Herod... Verse 16, 
Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by these wise men, they went the back door. He's furious, he's enraged, and he makes a rash decision. He's irrational, and he decides in the moment, we're going to kill every baby in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. I'm going to dispatch soldiers to take babies and to spear them through with their swords, to bash their heads upon the rocks, to do whatever they want to do, and they have to kill these children. Hard to fathom. Yet that's exactly what happens. And he, using the information he got from the wise men about the original appearing of the star, makes a decision about the dates of which babies will be killed. Can you imagine? You moms, can you imagine? It flies like wildfire that Herod is passing down a decree that all babies are going to be killed under the age of two. You're in Bethlehem. You have a matter of minutes. Soldiers are being dispatched, and your children are going to be killed. The weeping would have been unbelievable inside of villages as multiple families were affected by the death of multiple children at the hands of murderous soldiers under the decree of a murderous king. And the weeping and the wailing and the mourning of these Jewish families was a fulfillment. It was the third fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2 of prophecy, and it was spoken by Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, which is five miles north of Jerusalem, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel is representative of Jewish moms as the mother of Jewish people. And we have yet another type, because in Jeremiah 31, where this passage is found, if you use cross-referencing in your Bible, Jeremiah 31:15, the prophet is prophesying about the Babylonian captivity that would come to Israel for their disobedience. And most of the people of Israel, because of their disobedience, were going to be swept away into Babylon into captivity, into lives of slavery, and the families, the households of those who remained in Ramah would weep and lament and cry out, and Rachel would weep for her children, that being for the nation. And the nation will refuse to be comforted because all that are taken are no more. So again, Israel, in a very historic event that happened and had a near prophetic fulfillment, is a type of this very event in the life of Jesus Christ. And because he was spared of the destruction of Ramah, and because of the destruction of Herod's plan, he is further proven to be the one who he claimed to be, not only born of Bethlehem, not only out of Egypt, but also rescued from the destruction that befell all of the other two-year-olds and under in the region. What a bloodbath this would have been. What a disruptive time this would have been. All because the, the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews. And I would believe that even at this early point, a hatred for whoever this one is has already been seated in the people in this area. So, the prophecy is found in Jeremiah. And Rachel is the Old Testament type of the mothers of the murdered babies at the hands of Herod the Great. Again, we allow the New Testament to guide our typology in the Old Testament. So Jesus is born of Bethlehem. He's out of Egypt. He's rescued from Ramah. And then the fourth and final one in chapter 2, the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus as Messiah is that he was called a Nazarene. Jesus called a Nazarene in verses 19 to 23. And at the conclusion, we will have wrapped up an entire chapter of Matthew. But when Herod died, old Joseph down in Egypt, making a living, getting by, heads to bed, and we already know what's going to happen. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. It's been a while maybe months, maybe years. We don't know how long, but Herod has died. Joseph goes to bed, 
And the same old thing happens. He has a dream, and an angel comes and gives him a direct message from none other than God himself. Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I try to think and put myself in the shoes of Joseph and Mary. By this point, this is the third time an angel has come and told Joseph to do something directly related to the child. Mary had direct revelation given to her by an angel, none other than Gabriel, about the child that she would carry. They must be amazed at what has happened to their lives because of this child, Jesus. Yet how could they deny that God was superintending the life of this child because he was the very Son of God? And so verse 21 gives us the same M.O. for Joseph, the same routine. And Joseph rose, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. No questions asked. Unequivocal obedience. Now when Joseph gets near to the land of Israel, he hears through the grapevine that Archelaus is reigning over Judea. And that's Herod's son. And rightly, he fears that he will be under judgment because he has fled. And so he goes away from there and being warned in a dream, no surprise at all, he has another dream, he's warned again, and he goes to the district of Galilee. Now, Galilee is not a near, uh, a near location. That's 55 miles north if you ever crack the maps of your Bible. And I know that we don't normally do that. But if you do, you can find the region of Galilee on the map that's titled uh, Israel in the Time of Christ or Jesus, something like that. You'll find Galilee far to the north. Jerusalem will be in the middle, and Bethlehem will be south of Jerusalem, just five miles south of Jerusalem. Joseph goes all the way to Galilee, and he settles in a town, a little village called Nazareth. And all of this seems so unimportant why does this matter why do we need all this detail why do we why do we need this well verse 23 says he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled so that you would leave this morning and each reading of this and everyone who read this and will read this would leave with a full confidence that Jesus was none other than the promised one of old. And here's the, prom- the prophecy that was given. He shall be called a Nazarene. Joseph has dreams. He obeys the word of the Lord. He ends up going around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and he heads for Galilee. He goes to Nazareth. And we're stuck with a major problem. How many of you this morning have a Bible that gives you cross-referencing in your side column or in the middle of your page or something? Anybody? Okay. When you go down to He shall be called a Nazarene, I would doubt heavily that you have any letter that would give you guidance in your margin. The reason for that is we can't find that in our Old Testament We can't find he shall be called a Nazarene. Say, oh, no. Our bibliology is coming undone at the seams. Absolutely not. A couple clues. First of all, prophets is plural. This was spoken by more than one prophet. Secondly, it's likely that this was just a verbal, non-recorded prophecy that was passed down. But there is another likelihood, and I think this is one that should have our full attention. To be called a Nazarene was to be a local slur about the land of Galilee as a whole. You'll remember in John that they are slandered for being from Galilee because they are unlearned Galileans. Do you remember that? Much like West Virginia or Arkansas, uh, depending on where you grew up. I don't know what it is over here. Uh, What state do we make fun of in California? Where I grew up, West Virginia, was our state of choice. We mocked them 
we made comments about the fact that they married cousins, and we said other mean things about them all the way through, and I still uh, am scarred by believing most of them, even when I ministered in that state. I know that in the South, Arkansas gets that, and I, it baffles my mind because in the North, we think that all the Southern states are like that, so the fact that the Southern states make fun of other states is no different in this time. The people of Galilee were seen as unlearned, uneducated, white, not white-collar, blue-collar people who worked and slaved and were fishermen and did menial tasks and were to be considered not worthy of respect. Now, if being called a Nazarene was a slur against this group of people, you're nothing but a Nazarene, and it was a despicable term and despised among the people of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, then Matthew's point would be given through the Psalms in Psalm 22 and the prophecy given in Isaiah 49, verse 7, and Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Jesus, the promised one, would be despised. He would be viewed as foolish, as a fool, so whether this is a verbal, unrecorded prophecy, whether this is a slur that is tied back to our Old Testaments, the fact is still the same. Matthew's point is unchanged. The prophet spoke, and it is being fulfilled in Jesus. You are without excuse. The Jewish people are without excuse because they have rejected their promised Messiah. He is the rightful heir of the throne, he is the rightful heir of the promises of Abraham, and he is the fulfillment of prophecy. So, Matthew's mission is obvious in chapter 2. And I am left with questions for you this, this morning that are pointed because of the pointed nature of the main point of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 is simple. He was promised and he's here. The promises are all wrapped in Christ. There are over 300 promises in the Old Testament that are directly tied to Jesus Christ. We've looked at four promises that have seen their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Matthew thinks this is plenty for this chapter, this section of his writing, to confirm and affirm the messianic claim of Jesus Christ. And so in doing so, he leaves us with questions. And he leaves every reader with questions. Will we believe what Jesus said about himself is true? Will we believe that he is in fact the promised one of God? He's promised from the Old Testament. He's, he is the fulfillment of types in the Old Testament. Will we fall in worship with radical sacrifice? not unlike the Magi, to this one who is the Savior of sinners? Or, or, will we despise him and turn in rebellion from his claims on our life? You see, it's not enough for us to say, okay, I get it. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. Okay, I believe it. I believe. Pipe down. Don't get so excited about it. It's not enough. Because the Messianic claim is a claim on your life. It's a claim on your heart. It is a single claim on your allegiance and on your worship. To say and to profess that you believe this to be true is to say, I give my life away and I will follow Him. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is what He claimed to be. This is huge. The ramifications of Matthew chapter 2 could be no greater Jesus was the fulfillment. And He demands our lives and our worship. Philippians 2 seemed like a fitting place to end. It's so familiar. I think we've already even read it in our study of Matthew. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore God... The Father has highly exalted Him, the Son, and bestowed on Him, the Son, the name that is above every name. 
So that, here's the purpose why God has now exalted Jesus Christ. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Master to the glory of God the Father. Here's the proof. Matthew chapter 2. The point is Philippians 2. Everyone will bow. Everyone will confess the truth about Jesus. Everyone will confess it to be true. You will either do it in gratitude for your salvation or you will do it under obligation before your eternal judgment. But all will bow. All will submit. And the miracle of grace is that we sit here now breathing, living beings, and we are given an opportunity to bow the knee of our heart to the Messiah today. This is the day of salvation. This is the age of salvation. You die, it's over. Christ returns, it's over. As long as we sit here and we live and we breathe and we have the Word of God revealed to us, we are given the opportunity to repent and to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you this morning reaffirm, believer, your belief and your confidence in the messianic claim of Christ? And will it be seen in the radical worship of your life? Are we willing to get out of the box to worship God in a way that is radical, that wrecks our little little routine of life, Are we willing to talk to somebody who we have not talked to about Christ? Are we willing to be radical enough to give our all, to give our resources, our time to His kingdom? Or is this just some superficial profession that He is who He claimed to be, and yet His claim on my life is not what I'm willing to give? And for you who are here this morning who may believe intellectually, who may understand the facts, but who have never bowed the knee to Christ. Today is the day. Will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as the promised substitute, the one who died to save sinners, so that God may look on His death as a substitute for the penalty for your sin and look on His righteousness as if it was the life that you lived. And by doing so, justify, pardon you from your just penalty. This is God's offer to you. This is not my offer. This is the offer offer of none other than the Lord himself. And Matthew chapter 2 should reaffirm our boldness as Christians, our desperateness as those who go with the truth that Jesus Christ is none other than than the promised one. Son of man, son of God, and the promise fulfilled. That's our Christ. That's our Lord. And let's worship him this week.